This is message number nine in our series, Thriving in the World, as taught by Dr. Joel Hunter. The subject he will address is the future war on the home. And from the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter has chosen Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39 as his scripture text. And it reads as follows. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. We invite you now to join with us as we enter into praise and worship, followed by the continuation of Dr. Hunter's teaching series, Thriving in the World, and his message, The Future War on the Home. In our ten-year journey toward spiritual maturity, we are teaching this year how God builds spiritual maturity through adversity. And we're teaching in this part of the year how he builds it through the adversity of living in a culture whose values and trends are opposite or counter to the absolutes of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be talking about the home and the family and the forces that are more than willing to tear that apart, whether intentionally or unintentionally. We thought it might be nice just to give you a little remembrance of not too many years back when the family seemed so solid and the problems seemed so few and so common and the relationships seemed so strong. Remember? Let's go down to creek. No, I got some thinking to do. Oh, why? You, uh, you got some kind of problem? Well, I got something to ask you. Something important. Yeah? Well, go ahead. Can I run away from home? Ah, uh, you... You want to run away from home? Well, now, uh, if, if, if that's what you got on your mind, well, you, you're going about it all wrong. I am? Oh, yeah. You ain't supposed to ask your pa. But you always said I should never go anyplace far without getting your permission. Well, yeah, I know I did say that, but, uh, see, see, running away from home is a little special. See, what you do in a case like that is first you write a note saying that you're running away, and then you do. You mean to tell me that's all there is to it? That's all. But I don't know how to write. <laughs> does make a problem. <laughs> I'll tell you what, if you are really bound to run away, I'll write a note for you. You will? Yes, sir. I'll do it. Now, let's see, uh, when was it you want to leave? Right away. Well, today's Wednesday. Let's see, and about how long was you figuring on staying? Why? Oh, never mind, that stands to reason. If you run away, you run away forever. What do you mean? Now, don't bother me, I'm thinking. Uh, dear Pa, I am running away from home, and you will never see me again. Pa, what are you talking about? Why won't I ever see you again? 
Well, that stands to reason. You've run away and I'm right here. Now, how are we going to see one another? No! Well, what did you, what are you doing that for? I didn't finish for nothing, Chad. I don't want you to finish. I don't want to run away. I changed my mind. Oh, oh I reckon the little boy gets the right to change his mind. I don't want to leave you, Paul. And I don't want you to leave Opie. Remember? Whoever thought there'd come a day in our society when there were more parents running away from home than children. But even as we look at this, we are likely to fool ourselves about how ideal things were even back then. Because we want such simple answers and because we, li- we believe we lived in a simpler day, it almost seems as if Christianity then would have been a nice addition to what was already strong and good. The programs that we had, the concepts that we saw in the family, were not always just a mom and a dad living together. You know, Aunt B had to help raise Opie, and remember my three sons, there was some gruff old guy with the boys, and so on and so forth, and Hazel, remember Hazel? Uh, I like those old, these old movies I've been watching. Um, she was a big part of the family, and uh, um, but even even um, when the families were not uh, so traditional out of necessity, there was still one common element, and that was the great deal of attention that was given to the family, the great deal of attention that was given to the kids. Remember the Ozzie and Harriet Nelson program? Remember that? Um, anybody name what Ozzie did for a living? They, they never told you. They never said. He was home all the time. My theory is he was a preacher. He preachers, only, <laughs> preachers only have to work on Sundays, you know, so he probably could be home all the time. But the point is that the model, the good model, was that families paid a great deal of attention to each other and there was a very high value on the family life. The problem is that the misconception can come that there is such a thing as a culturally strong family. Because as we are dealing with some of the problems of the kids that grew up in these families, we know that it wasn't ideal even then. We know that there is no such thing as a culturally long-lasting family. As a matter of fact... The one benefit we have to living in a society that we do today is we don't have to fool ourselves about the rotten condition of the family. We see it all too plainly. It is all too manifest in our everyday living. And surely some of us think we live in the worst times that ever were for the family. And tell you what, we come close. There's a tie here probably. In his book, uh, Turning the Tide, Robertson says, you know, in the past 30 years, the the government help for families has increased 500%. During that same period of time, the pregnancies, unwed pregnancies, have gone up 400%. Abortions have gone up 1,100%. Single-parent households have gone up 300%. Suicides have gone up 200%, and on and on and on. It's not being fixed by the government or by money. 
As a matter of fact, the secular magazines, and I'll quote you secular magazines because I don't want you to think that I am uh, only read Christian stuff. The secular magazines say that the family is so fast falling apart, we can't even see it ourselves. Remember, uh, remember last, when was it? Last Christmas time, when Donald and Karen Shue left their two little girls at home and took a Mexican vacation, flew off to Mexico, two little girls to fend for themselves. Do you remember how indignant the nation was? Well, Insight Magazine last week, or last month, published an article that said, we're basically doing the same thing. It's just the geography space is not as big. Parents are going off to work and essentially abandoning their their kids to raise themselves. Parents go to other parts of the house and let the television raise the kids. I like what Steve Farrar said. Steve Farrar wrote Point Man about spiritual leadership in the home. He said, I don't let my kids watch commercial TV for the same reason I don't let them drink out of the toilet bowl. (laughs) I'm not that radical, but I I do like the phrase. The point is that many of us are avoiding responsibility in raising our own children. Many of us are exiting the home. Sometimes when we still live there, sometimes to live away from there. And the single biggest risk factor to a child in this society is being raised in a single parent household. Usually when the father is absent. The statistics are mind-boggling. 75% of the suicides in today's teenage population are kids that are in single parent household. 20 to 40% higher um, frequency of illness. Six out of seven kids in the in institution, penal institutions, are from single parent households. Um, 200, no, I'm sorry, 80% of the residents of psychiatric high, uh, house, hospitals are because those kids have lived in a single parent household and have not been essentially parented at all. Now, please don't think I'm picking on single parents. Uh, I was I was raised in a single parent household. I'm coming back to us. You know, I'm not going to leave us abandoned here. But I just want to tell you the importance that many people don't even realize about especially the father being resident with the mother. You know, and and that this is psychology today last week or last month had an article chasing down some of these behavioral problems of the children and chasing down some of these non-resident fathers and the response of one of the fathers to the reporter seemed to sum up nicely the uh, sense or the incense of the father, the nonsense of the father in their thinking. They said, look, if my kid has problems, it's got to be my wife's fault. I wasn't even there. Can you imagine somebody being that deluded? And it's we're living in a society where, where marriage is becoming such a dangerous proposition that it doesn't even seem advisable anymore. As a matter of fact, in uh, I think it was Newsweek magazine, there's an article about the growing trend of professional women 
to have children without the benefit of a husband or the non-benefit as they would see it. As a matter of fact, 25% of the children born in America to women ages 18 to 44 will be born without the benefit of married parents. Listen to this. 40% of all first children born this year will be born into single-parent households. 40%. And it's not just the parent thing, it's the marriage thing altogether. In Time Magazine, last week they had an article, or I think it was a couple of weeks ago, now they had an article about the divorce rate. And they just mentioned, Secular Magazine, this is not Christian doctrine, this is Secular Magazine. They mentioned it is literally, legally, more difficult for a person to walk away from a promise to buy a second-hand car than it is for a person to walk out of their marriage. More difficult. Well, you think, oh man, let's cut this out right now. You're depressing me. Well, I haven't even started yet. The scripture, I'm telling you, Scripture, the 10th chapter of Matthew Jesus walked into a society very much like the society we have today, believe it or not. The family structure was just as rotten. The social structure was just as rotten. And when he came in, he said words that were not very comforting. As a matter of fact, the first time you read these, you think, how odd, how unlike God to say these things. Look at verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies, look at this, will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. What in the world would make Jesus say something like that? Isn't he supposed to be saying just the opposite? Yeah. And he does. But it has to be on the right basis. You can't come in and pretend to build on a foundation that is already so rotten it can't support any form of righteousness. When you become a Christian, you have to realize this, that you don't have a self-improvement religion. You've got a religion, not a religion, a relationship, where you have been, you have died and you have been totally been born again. And when Jesus walked into this society and he looked around at the social structures and the family structures, he knew that when he pronounced the absolutes of God, that it would do as much breaking up as it did mending together. Because it was so strong and it was, right was right and wrong was wrong. You know, when he walked into the family structure, let me just describe the context of the time. The families of that time had three strands, historical strands. There was the Hebrew strand in which marriage was held in the highest esteem and women were held in the highest esteem, ideally. But the practice of marriage didn't even come close by this time. As a matter of fact, there were two schools, the conservative school, the Shammai school, and conservatives 
say, look, we don't have the responsibility of thinking up what's right and what's wrong. That's been set by God. We either follow it or we don't. So there was the Samai school that gave very little leeway to divorce. They said, look, this is the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, and it applies only in cases of, of abandonment or adultery. And then there was the Hillel school, liberal school. It says, you know what? These things got to kind of fit in with where we are so that they're relevant to our society today. Well, there is no um, problem imagining which of those schools became biggest, fastest. Because of human nature and because we're always looking away, uh, for a way out of responsibility, the Hillel school was so popular by the time Jesus walked on the earth that marriage was so unstable that there were females... Many of them who were reluctant, were reluctant to get married at all because of the instability of the institution of marriage, because they thought the chances of a lasting marriage were so slim, they weren't getting married at all. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes, sounds familiar. Then there was the Greek strand. The Greek, Greeks never made a pretense of uh, lifting up the home as a reverent and sacred place uh, in which to be faithful to your wife. As a matter of fact, the Greeks said, well, the reason you have wives is to give uh, legitimacy to the sons, but the real life takes place outside the home. The exciting life takes place with uh, the prostitutes and with, with the mistresses outside the home. And so you had a whole society that was absolutely fascinated, not with the home life that they saw as boring, but with the life of the extramarital affairs. Does that sound familiar to you? And then there was the last strand, the Roman strand. And the Romans, even though they didn't have the right God, started out with the right form. Because the man of the house, the husband, was the uncontested, unabashed leader of that household. By the same token... The wife was highly prized as a partner in the marriage. She was encouraged to have a social life outside the home, unlike the Greek uh, wife. And the husband not only took responsibility to lead that household in its policies and in its customs, but he also took responsibility to lead that household in worship. He was the priest of the household. So successful was this system that William Barclay records, for the first 500 years, there was not one recorded case of divorce. But 200 years B.C., Rome conquered Greece militarily, and Greece conquered Rome non-ethically. And they adapted these non-values for the home. And so, by the time Jesus walked on the earth, he saw absolute corruption, absolute weakness in the family and social structures of the day, even as he must see today. And he knew that in order to have anything strong, you have to build it on a strong foundation. And he didn't have that strong foundation in the culture. He said in Matthew chapter 7, a wise man builds his house on a rock. And a fool builds it on a sand. You've got to have something strong to start with if you're going to build something strong. And so therefore, everything had to be wiped away. This is true not only for a family, it's true for an individual life. Christianity is not a self-improvement system. You aren't starting with anything. 
1 Corinthians 15, 36, it says, unless a seed falls and dies, there is no new life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, and the new creature has come. This is a theme all throughout Scripture. And so when Jesus came and said, I came not to bring peace, not to tickle your ears, but to bring a sword. There's got to be a division between what's right and what's wrong, what will last and what won't. And it's going to tear our families apart. But so be it, because we have to build on what is strong enough to support what we're going to build. When I first started out in the ministry, one of my first churches was a very poor church down in southern, southern Indiana. And uh, um, this it was a merger of three churches. One was an old, retired railroaders congregation. They didn't have any money. One was a small country congregation. J.T. Almond's family came from this country congregation. Uh, farmers, you know, they didn't have any money. And one was a black congregation. They didn't have any money. And Beck and I didn't have any money either, so we all fit just very nicely. And it really didn't matter because there wasn't a whole lot we did. The average, the average uh, uh, offering... Uh, for like 175, 180 people would be three, four hundred dollars. Just hardly any money. That was all the money we had. So doing anything in the church was a big deal. Well, it was a big brick church, old, lovely old brick church, and on the back there was this kind of a cruddy old wooden staircase. And every morning I'd climb that staircase to go up to my office. And so the trustees one day got kicking around dirt like they do, like trustees do. You know, they go around looking stuff, kick around the dirt, and said, "You know, we ought to." I ought to paint that old staircase. Yeah, said. So we went to the congregation to try to get enough money to, for paint, you know. Finally saved up enough money for paint. Went out, and they took the brushes out. And the only thing keeping that stairway up, they discovered, was that the termites were holding hands. <laughs> I mean, it was absolutely the rottenest thing they'd ever seen. And they just stood there and said, Put their brushes back. We're not even going to try this. We've got to save up enough money to build a whole new staircase. That's exactly the point. That's exactly where we are today. You can't build a family on the values of this culture. Because the culture will say, there's peace, it's okay. We've got pluralism. There's lots of kinds of families we can build. It doesn't matter. Whatever fits your needs for whatever time. That's what we'll build. You see, the way the culture fixes a problem is to redefine the problem so that they can have the answer already in store. It's kind of like the target practice guy who shoots first and then draws circles around it. That's how the culture fixes problems. Say, what do we got? Well, let's call it right. What do we got? Well, let's call it on target. And so we have a whole culture of people that are saying, number one, you know what? I just don't think it's possible to have a functional family. I don't think a happy family that lasts forever is even possible anymore. They dismiss the idea out of hand. Forget the ideal, you'll just be disappointed, they say. Number two, we have a media who is really trying to promote the legitimacy of aberrant lifestyles and call them a family. Not only a media, but media, but now a legal system that is trying to do the same thing. And believe me, we will all pay for this. But there is the promotion of alternative couples now and trying to call them a family. Now, please 
Don't get a basic respect for people mixed up with your anger and righteous indignation. All people are made in the image of God. All people deserve to be treated lovingly. But then comes the statement, but what you're doing is wrong. You see, the homosexual community, for example, is trying to promote the normalcy of homosexuality. Now, homosexuality doesn't shock me. There's always been homosexuality. You know, cohabitation doesn't shock me. There's always been cohabitation. Different aberrant lifestyles don't shock me. There's always been that. Where a culture gets into trouble is when they legitimize it and say, well, that too is a traditional family. That too is what we're aiming for. Because that is not what will last. You know, the culture's answer is to flood the market with material that will ease your judgment. Did any of you read this week in the Sentinel that the gay and lesbian community has given uh, 42 schools in Kansas City, Missouri, the uh, materials that would allow students an unbiased look at homosexuality and allow them all to explore their own homosexuality? What surprised me more than that, because, you know, these people are very active. What surprised me more than that was the response of the school official who was accepting, who would be accepting the curriculum. He said, we'll judge this like we would any curriculum. What? There's no difference in value here. There's no, there's no, um, um, other judgment other than just its literary accuracy. There's not. You see, what's happening is that we are allowing the family to be redefined to the consternation of the traditional family because there is a problem here with anger. There's a problem here with abandonment. There's a problem here not going back to fixing the thing, just calling everything normal. Let me tell you, I don't want to get off on the homosexual issue. But let me tell you something. If you buy the fact that homosexuality is biologically predetermined, you're buying a lie. Because all of our behavior is affected by what we've learned. All of our behavior is affected by our choice. The way we live is not biologically predetermined in any sense. When people say, when did you choose to be a heterosexual? All of us chose that. I don't know whether you remember or not, but when I was growing up, I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know what connections were. I looked and learned. It's like, it's like the, the, the kid who brings home a report card. And it's a lousy report card. And he puts it in front of his mother and he says, I don't know, Mom, what do you think it is? Heredity or environment? Well, it could be a little of each, but it's mostly your personal decision. And that's the way we live our lives, mostly our personal decision. And so we've got to understand that our culture has trends against the traditional family. Our government has policies against the traditional family. The church is weak in teaching the family how to live the godly way and giving the skills. And so there's a war on. And part of the war is saying, you know, You don't need a traditional family. Just go out and kind of form your own temporary alliances. Form virtual families. 
Barna calls them novu families. He says, form, the, the, the trend is form virtual families. You know what? There's a hunger in you that that just doesn't work. You know, one of the most pitiful things I've read recently is in a magazine called Look Japan. It's a magazine that talks about the trends in Japan. And there is a, a trend in Japan with older people, which is a rented family. Here are older people who are willing to pay what is in American money, $1,100 for a three-hour visit from a rented son and his pretend wife and their pretend child. And there is a hundred people on the waiting list. Do you know the hunger that we have for long-lasting family? It doesn't go away. It's not a false hunger. It's in us. And so, therefore, the church needs to... Now, look, I'm, I'm gonna, now I'm going to quit messing around with you and really start preaching. The church has the answer. The Bible has the answer. There is not a problem that we have right now that Christ cannot solve. Now, please... Don't let Satan come in and say, look, if you aren't in a traditional family, he's not talking to you. God can take you anywhere you are right now. You don't have to go back and repair all the things that have happened in the past. He can build up in you what he has for your life from now on. So forget the guilt. Don't let Satan in. Just get in a, in a positive point of view right now and let me talk to you about how God has designed the family and please don't dismiss this out of hand as naive or, or, or uh, idealistic you know and, and uh, Tom Brokaw the other night on the news on Friday night they talked about the horrible cost of all the violence in our society and they had on two experts one was Dr. Prothero Stith of Harvard University you've seen her around very sharp lady and one was Dr. William Bennett and they said, what can we do here? What can we do because of this horrible violence and the absolute devastation of our kids? Well, both of them had different answers. Two of them, they had different answers. Bill Bennett said, build up the family. These kids need strong families. They need fathers in the house. Do you know what? For, the, for thousands of years, the way to raise a family, especially a boy in a family, was that his mother raised him primarily until he was about five, but about five to seven he went and he just camped out with his dad. And his dad formed with him a master-apprentice relationship in all aspects, in family living, in family leadership, in vocational aptitude. Until the Industrial Revolution, that relationship was so strong but it has become such an oddity these days that we would actually train our own sons that people dismiss it out of hand. And we're paying dearly for it. I mean, I, I, I'll get back to this in just a second. Um, how much time we got? i got a couple minutes. Let me tell you something else. We could go till the middle of the afternoon. Just let the other service come in and out. Armand Nikolai, Harvard psychiatrist, did, he's a, still a professor of psychiatry at Harvard, noticed when he was doing his, this is written about in uh, uh, Looking Forward, the next 40 years, if you want to read it. He noticed when he was doing his, um, his work, 
he was counseling two groups, two very different groups. One group was the rich Ivy League crowd. And he noticed in them, the ones who had come from very weak families, that they had common symptoms, and the symptoms were these. Number one, they felt worthless. Didn't matter how much money they had, they felt worthless. Number two, they couldn't form lasting relationships. Number three, they couldn't concentrate on work and really produce anything over a significant period of time. Number four, they had a problem with authority. And number five, they had anger issues coming out the ears. At the same time, he was doing volunteer work in a ghetto clinic with people who came from weak family backgrounds. Guess what symptoms he saw in them? Feelings of worthlessness, inability to have long-term relationships, problems with authority, inability to do productive, carry through on productive work, and so on and so forth. The exact same symptoms. The thing that they had in common was the weakness of their home life. He said the difference was that the rich people turned their anger inward on themselves. And they acted out sexually and with much sexual promiscuity. By the way, here's another thing about homosexuality. I don't know how many people you know who are homosexual. I know some and love some. Some of my best friends are homosexual. But every homosexual I know well has an anger issue with the unavailability of his father. Every one of them. Don't tell me there's not a pattern there and that's all biologically predetermined. It's not true. Anyhow. So anyhow, they turn it inward and they go for relief through sexual acting out or through drugs or whatever they can afford, see? In the ghetto, their angers turn outward toward violence and blame and destruction. Outward. Same family dynamic, same symptoms, two different reactions. So where was I now? Building strong families. Okay, you ready for this? So Bennett says they need fathers. That's what they need. Prothero Stiff is so, she dismisses it out of hand. She says, no, what they need is a community that will surround them when the family fails. Now, how many communities you know that will do that? I know of one that ought to. The church. That's why we're here. To build a support system for the family. We've done a lousy job at it. But it is not to say we can't do better. It is not to say that we can't surround a brother that's trying to succeed in his marriage and pray for him and teach him. None of you guys were, were really taught how to be a husband. None of you were really taught very well how to be a father, I suspect. Many of us did not have the pattern that we needed to be a strong family leader. So where do we get this? Well, the culture would say, forget it. Make it all a democracy. You know, just kind of let everybody do their own thing and meet their own needs. In a democracy, even in peace, 
for the stability of a society, there must be leadership. Even in a democracy, there's got to be leadership. And you know what? When you're in a war, leadership is an emergency. And the American family is in a war. And leadership is absolutely an emergency. And what we've got to do is take this seriously. Turn with me real quickly to Ephesians chapter 5. Just let me just talk to you for a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you. This is not undoable stuff. It's that it's difficult and many people don't want to try it. But read with me just a moment how this goes. It goes like this. Wives, verse 22, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now this is a present imperative verb tense. And you know what that means? It means you've got to make up your mind to do it again and again and again and again. Because there's nothing in you that wants to be subject to your husband. That bonehead doesn't know what he's doing. Lazy, couch potato, doesn't know what he's doing. So what's the Bible say? It says you've got to remind yourself every time, be subject to your husband. The Bible does not give any alternative to this. As to the Lord, look at what it says. For the husband is the head of the wife, as the Christ is also the head of the church, and he himself being the Savior of the body. I hear people read that and say, well, he doesn't really mean head. Well, yeah, he does. That's what it says. It says, the husband is head of the wife. And, and that's translated roughly, the husband is head of the wife. That's what it says. You know, there's no way you can really get around this. There's no, there's no Greek enough you can learn to get around this. Look what it says. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Present imperative verb tense. You lunkheads don't know how... I'm, I'm sorry. This is me. I'm talking to me. We don't know how to love. We know how to do. We know how to bring home a paycheck. There are very few of us that know how to be tender and loving and sensitive. It is a practice. It is a skill. It's what we want to do. We just don't know how to do it. That's why it's in the present imperative verb tense here. It says, you've got to remind yourself. It's a decision again and again and again. And husbands say, well, man, that's tough. I don't know how to do that. Matter of fact, I don't want to be head of the household. I know you don't. That's why this is an, an appointed post. Not only because you don't want to, but because none of us feel qualified. That's the point. That's why it needs to be an appointed post. Because none of us are qualified. If we had to run an election on this deal by popular vote, none of us would be elected. You realize that. God knows that. So he appointed us. Not our business. His appointment. We're in the spot. We're in the slot. Now look what it says. It says, So, uh, that he might... I'm sorry. As Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know what the dynamics of spiritual leadership are? 
Number one, that you make decisions. You're a strong decision maker. But number two, you always make those decisions on the basis of what you can give up for your family. You always make the decisions on what's best for your wife and what's best for your children. And then in the sixth chapter, it says, Children, obey your parents. And look at the reason. Boy, it gives us a long reasoning here. gives us a big explanation. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's all it says. Because it's the right thing to do. You don't try and figure it out. and You don't try and argue about it. It's the right thing to do. Now, friends, don't think we haven't been given a blueprint for the family. Don't think we've got to reinvent how the family ought to operate. The Word says it. We need to do it. Now, let me just say one more thing, and then, then we're going to, to leave. Or sing. Whatever is next. I realize that a lot of times I come in and I get all worked up because I believe in this stuff. And you know what? <laughs> I just keep thinking of stuff. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. For those families who haven't, who haven't got this male figure present, that's why we need to form closer community. You know, there's some of us that got, this, got some of this dad stuff left over. I mean, our kids are coming out pretty good, and we got some of this dad stuff left over. And so we ought to be able to use the dad stuff for as long as we're dads and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and so and so. We've got to, that's what the church is for, see? So there's, there's hope in the community. You'll never find it out there. You can't do this with a government program. You can't do it with any amount of money. It's got to be the love of God that forms the strength and the model for a family relationship in Jesus Christ. It's got to be that. And that's got to come from the church. It's a huge challenge. But the church has to be able to do it. Now, I know many of you men are saying, okay, okay, make a decision on the basis of... Uh, uh, okay, I can do the leadership thing, but the spiritual thing scares me. Because to be a spiritual leader, you've got to know something about God, and I don't know anything about God. Boy, have we got a deal for you. This Tuesday night, we would like to give you the skills. Actually, Ted Herbach, who was with the Navigators for years and did this for years, would like to teach men, we're starting off with that because that's the ideal, would like to teach men how to hear God through the Scriptures. This is a skill. It's not a big mystic thing. It's a skill. And you can learn it. You can learn how to read the Scripture in order to hear what God is saying to your life. And you will find that when God has regular input to your life, you are a spiritual leader. Because that's the spiritual part of the leadership. You have heard from God about your life, and you can model what God wants to live out through your life. And so we will train you, 7 o'clock, at that brown building over there. That was the only room available. Room 301, that's the only room that's not listed in your bulletin, but you can figure it out. It's right opposite of 302. In the annex building, we're calling it now. Go, out, go down that other drive and you'll end up in that building. But Tuesday night, give you an hour, and then if any of you want to sign up for like a six-week uh, um, group where you practice this with one another, we'll do that too. But we'll teach you the skills of listening to God through the Scriptures. Whew. Okay? All right. Pray with me.
God, there's so much to say, but there's only one decision to make. And that is to either let you have this or not. And so, Father, make us right now aware that we have that decision. And for those hearts that are open, Lord, incline us to say, today, I will become the family member that I was designed to be. I will become a person who lives out the biblical blueprint as I understand it, and I will be dedicated to my family as I am dedicated to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.